Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Unconventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thank you for downloading the second part of this podcast from the Unconventional Soldier series, featuring Jimmy Morham and his account of three Paris attack on Mount Longdon during the Falklands War. Jimmy continues his riveting story from where we finished on the last episode. So we were given uh, our orders from the colonel down to company level, and then that briefing obviously cascaded down to those of us uh, in the platoons within the companies. Our platoon, 6th platoon, were going to attack the very top of Mount Longdon. And the best way of describing Longdon, uh, we were looking at it side on from our position, and it looked to me like a lion laid down with its legs out in front of it. So we were going to go up the slopes of Longdon, the legs, as a platoon, and we were then going to assault the head of the lion, the top of Longdon, on that end. We're then going to run down the neck, onto the back, down to the back end, and run along the tail, basically rolling Longdon up from one point all the way through to the final end of it. And if we could and we were capable, we were going to roll up wireless ridge as well. As it turned out, that wasn't possible. So that's six platoon. We were going to attack the head of the lion. The two other rifle platoons of B Company were going to attack along the flank of the lion. So we'd be at the top, fighting along the top. The other two platoons were fighting along the flank of the mountain itself. A Company were kept just short of the mountain, ready to support B Company in its attack or to exploit any breakthrough. C Company was held off to a flank in reserve. Those two companies were also engaged from where they were during the attack as well, prior to arriving on the mountain. But again, more about that later on. Very simply, the whole battalion was engaged at some stage of the game by enemy fire. So for us as a platoon, we were going to be led on the objective by a guy from patrol company. And obviously, it was one of the lads who had carried out the close target reconnaissance on our particular section of the mountain. We knew that they had 
bunkered positions throughout the entire uh, mountain itself. It was very steep, but only a couple of hundred feet high, strewn with very, very large rock runs. And this is like a, a wall of rock. If you think of the, the back of a dinosaur, the scales on the back of a dinosaur, that's what they were like. They were two-story in height, and they basically ran from the bottom of the mountain up to the top. And there'd be something like a 20-meter gap between each rock run. So very simply, there was no room for maneuver. You were trapped on your left by a rock run, trapped on your right by a rock run, and you could only advance straight up what was in reality a killing zone for the enemy. Ideal defending ground, really, isn't it? It was very, very well defended. Uh, We had the B Company group of the 7th Infantry Regiment of the Argentinian Army on the mountain with a platoon of Marines with their 50 cal machine guns. They had a platoon of engineers who bizarrely were issued with the most up-to-date Knighton second-generation rifle night vision aids. So they had approximately a third more men than we had attacking them on the mountain as a company group. Very, very well entrenched, very well sighted bunkers made out of rocks from the feature itself, which they camouflaged and merged in with the existing topography of the mountain. So even in daylight, they were very, very hard to see. They were at the base of the rocks, they were up the rocks, and they were on top of the rocks. They were absolutely everywhere. Their killing areas were well-defined. Their sustained fire weapons, firing on fixed lines, brilliant killing areas, and their platoons and sections were all tightly knitted together in mutual support. And that is what we faced to attack. We had no room for manoeuvre due to the ground, so at any one time, we were never going to get more than a company on that feature. There was just no room to maneuver to flank left or right, given the ground that we were given. So we were going to go in silent, led by our guides. We left our defensive positions on the night of the 11th, just as it got dark. Again, a battalion snake all the way down as far as the Murrow River. The Murrow River was halfway between us and Longdon. It was a significant water obstacle. Our parachute engineers somehow, from somewhere, got hold of a, a, a ladder. And they very simply improvised a simple infantry bridge over the Murrow River. And that's how the entire battalion crossed that river. I have no recollection of crossing it myself, but that's how we did. Those parachute engineers were, were absolutely fantastic. Very, very brave men. And they went into the assault with us. Just a point about that, because it's reminded me. When we went into the assault, we took everybody. Rifle companies, cooks, bottle washers, P-Corps. Everybody got taken into the assault. The mailed fist were the rifle companies. Support company formed fire bases to fire in the attack and support the assaulting companies. The cooks, bottle washers, P-Corps, they carried as much ammunition as they could get on their backs, ammunition in, and they carried casualties out. So the whole battalion went into the assault, whether you were paratrained or not, we took everybody. Those ECC cooks and the PECOR guys that pulled those casualties off the mountain under fire were were as brave as hell. And and every guy in the battalion uh, admired those guys for the work that they carried out up and beyond their normal trade. They were absolutely fantastic. Brave to a man. More about that later on. Jeremy, sorry, just can I just ask you a quick question? So, looking at after you'd had your orders, and you and obviously you, you could see during the daylight what you were going to attack. 
Did you did you ever thinking, oh my god, this is an impossible task, or were you confident that this was within your capabilities? At, at no time did, did we think that we couldn't couldn't carry this off. I mean, there was nothing gung ho about it. We were all quietly aware of what Two Power had achieved down at Goose Green. The CEO had given us all the casualty list. We had friends killed down at Goose Green. We knew this was for real. Plus, obviously, we were in a war, war fighting zone from basically the exclusion zone onwards. Ships were being sunk. We were being attacked as well by aircraft while we were being dug in. So we're very aware all the time that, you know, this is real. Guys were going to get killed. But at the same time, we were confident that we were, we were going to carry out our part in this attack. And that brigade attack was going to be successful. And we would carry out our part in it to the whole. So it's a mindset, isn't it? It's the whole brigade must have had that mindset then. You know, you're just going to go forward. Uh, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's not big-headed to say they had the right troops in Free Commando Brigade to make that campaign work. Without doubt, we were the best soldiers available in the British Army and the Navy at that time. It was us. And we were going to achieve it, regardless of the casualties. The mission came first, and it was going to happen. So we set out that evening. Uh, my call sign had changed its composition a wee bit. We'd had a mix around of the, the various weapon systems uh, in relation to our platoon's mission. I was given uh, two 84 teams uh, with the 84mm cargo stuff, and we were going to be bunker-busting, basically. That was going to be our role. I lost my machine gun team to one of the sections with the proviso that I'd get them back off the initial assault. I never did because my, my, my gunner was hit anyway. Uh, I had the Bravo mortar fire controller uh, because we were the point, point platoon. So he was going to stick with the uh, the platoon commander and call down fire as and when required from our mortars. Uh, and I also took up the company medic. So that was my, my call sign. So we were integral to B Company, integral to 6th Platoon, and 6th Platoon's mission was to take the top half of the mountain. So we crossed the Morrill Bridge. It was a very cold night, uh, intermittent moonlight, but mainly low cloud. It had snowed, so very crisp, clear, quiet night. All you could hear really was a crunch of our feet of a, a, a battalion advancing to the attack. We were aware that somewhere on our right were the two commando battalions also on the move as well. One of them unfortunately hit one of the rock runs that I described earlier on and it, it slowed them right down. I think they lost something like 45 minutes to an hour putting their attack in, just getting their guys across that rock run. So we found ourselves having crossed the Morrill Bridge, uh, which in reality was our start line. That's the last safe moment. So we were now in full assault mode, approaching towards Longdon. The first indication that we were observed by somebody on the mountain was one loom round being fired by the Argentinians. I think we'd been picked up by their ground locating radar and they'd put up one loom. Uh, it sounded to me when it, was, when, it, when it was flying through the air like it was tumbling. So I don't think it was functioning correctly, but we all very slowly got down to the ground as it was still gaining altitude. And then eventually it didn't do its job and it just impacted on the ground and then functioned. So all they've now got off to a flank is what would have been, I assume, a parachute flare, which is now just burning away merrily and not being any bother to us whatsoever. But that was an indication. They might have had an idea that we were out there. Bearing in mind, our patrols had been bugging them every night of the week. So they might have just put it up for the sheer hell of it and the off chance of catching out one of our patrols. We then closed towards the base of Longdon. Uh, and unfortunately, we were in the minefield. 
And the start of the whole battle was one of the section commanders uh, in B Company stepping on one of the mines and losing his lower leg. That obviously woke up the Argentinians and then straight away they engaged the two platoons uh, who were going to assault the lower flanks of Longden. As it was in that minefield, I think eventually we had something like three guys uh, lost their their lower limbs uh, in that minefield. They believe that the extreme cold temperatures lent to some of the mechanical devices of the mines freezing and not activating when pressure was applied. So I think we were quite lucky uh, in just those few numbers. So there we were. We're in the middle of the minefield. We've got a contact going, and we've now got to get ourselves to the base of this mountain and start our assault. Our platoon SOP was to leave our webbing at the base of Longdon and assault in our parasmocks, okay, having bombed up every pocket we possessed with ammunition, spare magazines, grenades, whatever we had at the time. I personally didn't leave my fighting order off. It's the one thing I just never do, and, and it's just nothing that any soldier ever does is separate himself from his kit. But, but that, that was their choice. They wanted to be light and running free in the rocks, and that's what they did. I kept mine on me. So we were led up the slope by uh, our particular guide. Uh, amazingly, we passed the lower bunkers with no sign of any occupation. That worked against us later on in the evening. So very simply, we got up the lion's legs up that slope out of contact, other than some fire that we received from a wee over on our right. It was very high. It was old trace. It was flying above our heads. Not a big deal, even though I think I loosed off something like a half a mag in the general direction. Those empty uh, bunkers, just, Jimmy, do you think the, 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 the Argentinians just vacated and moved back to the main position? Yeah, I think what some of them were doing at night time, uh, I believe they were leaving those forward locations and going back and sleeping in tents. Right. Because uh, we, Yeah, because we found some tents up there. However, that wasn't the case in all of them. And people did emerge later to then engage us from bunkers that we had bypassed. And again, I'll, I'll go into a wee bit more detail about that in a minute. So very simply, we six platoon got to the top, almost out of contact, because most of the firefight was going on below us and to our left with the two other flanking platoons of B Company. However, that all changed the minute we literally went over the top on a reach in the top. And we were then right in the middle of a platoon location, right in the middle of the company location. So we were then getting engaged 360. Some guys were on top of positions, some were in front of them, some had bypassed them. So basically getting fire now from, from every direction you can think of and above us, out of the rocks, and people are dropping like flies. We took a hell of a lot of casualties very, very quickly. We had section commanders killed, section commanders wounded, platoon sergeants wounded, platoon commanders wounded, all very, very quickly. So any form of recognized fighting organization very quickly broke down as a result of that. People were stranded around one rock run, separate from the rest of their section. Half of platoon would be around one side, half of being channeled up another. We were in the killing areas of the dug-in sections and dug-in platoons and on the sustained fire lines of their GPMGs and their 50 cals. So we took in B Company a hell of a lot of casualties very, very quickly. However, privates in the regiment don't need corporals to tell them what to do. So as bunkers were identified, they would be taken out. That would be a very, very slow process. One of identifying exactly where it is and what it is. 
two are trying to get some form of covering fire onto the bunker, while two guys or however many would crawl up on their belt buckles and get some grenades into it to silence it. The issue being, we couldn't see these guys. So with our fellas identifying a bunker, putting an assault on the bunker, and then being killed by another bunker on the flank that we couldn't see in the dark. The IWSs were literally useless in the available light at the time, given it was low load. This is pretty so much really, a section-level war at this point, Jimmy. Would you say a, a section-level attack? I, I know you can, you can probably say about most operations it goes down to section-level, but I get the impression with your discussion here that you've literally got sections and half-sections just cracking on on their own and find it very hard to interact with and consolidate with other sections and uh, either side of them. Is that a fair assessment? Exactly, exactly. It was very, very difficult for any platoon commander to control what his sections were doing. Nine times out of ten, they were out of sight. They were split up, and key personalities were dead, including some of the radio operators. So information coming back as well was sketchy. All you were getting was screams, shouting, grenades going off, incessant fire, walls of tracer flying absolutely everywhere, and you didn't know who was who. Thankfully, the Argentinians, bless them, were firing green tracer. Obviously, ours was the old classic British Army red, so that worked in our favour, and it certainly saved us engaging some of our own call signs, even though I myself was engaged by one of the call signs later on in the night. But again, more about that later on. But very, very fractured, very, very slow, and very casualty-heavy. And it was literally just breaking down at the smallest common denominator, two guys working together, being covered by their mates to slowly pick these bunkers off. And it was not easy because, as I say, as one is identified and engaged, the attackers were engaged from several other bunkers that you couldn't see in the pitch dark. Some guys were literally standing on top of the Argentinians when they were engaged. Right. Literally walked over what they thought was a lump of rock and fell into the trench with two Argentinians into it. It was uh, a, a target indication nightmare. Pitch dark, just flashes everywhere and trying to ascertain their location. Oh, absolutely. Uh, weaponry. The good old SLR that the British Army was issued with at the time, uh, every time you squeeze the trigger, it fires a round. Excellent weapon in its time. Certainly a battle winner in the 60s. By the 70s and 80s, it's starting to get outdated. And really, we should have been looking at uh, having an automatic weapon by 1982. We didn't. The Argentinians, on the other hand, had the, the FN, which was the automatic version, if you like, of the self-loading rifle. Very, very accurate. Many of them had bipods. Uh, if we weren't getting bursts of three to five rounds, we were getting sustained fire from them. And it was very, very effective. The issue that that gave us was the fact that we could not win the firefight. It was absolutely impossible. That is a, a basic no-no that you never assault a position without first getting the enemy's heads down by putting down a volume of fire, which basically ensures that their return fire is inadequate. We couldn't do that. Their firepower was just so great. So we had that to contend with as well. All the assaults were frontal because we couldn't flank and they were into a weight of fire that we couldn't match. So we had 11, 11 hours of that through the night. 11 hours. I bet that seemed to pass in seconds, didn't it? Or was, did it seem 11 hours? I'm, I'm just curious. To, <laughs> did that 11 hours go really quickly or did it feel like longer? It, it, it felt to me something like six, 
But we we arrived in the dark, and it finished basically in about the first hour of first light the following morning. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was 11 hours. And I would say initially, really, it, it was just a blur time-wise, an absolute blur with what was going on. My call sign was heavily engaged. We were engaging bunkers that we could identify with the 84 millimeter. Very, very difficult, but engaged them. We did. I deployed the medic forward uh, to assist with the casualties. He was killed very shortly afterwards. Uh, my gunner was with a section in front of me. He was hit through the throat quite quickly and put out the game. He was one of the guys that unfortunately was laid out on top of the mountain for at least six, seven hours before we could get forward to them and pull them back. Uh, and yeah, the, the ground was just littered with dead and wounded paratroopers and dead and wounded Argentinians. For myself, my main issue with the 84 was the fact that we had no night fighting capability, no night sights. One of my number ones, Geordie Lang, was killed very bravely trying to get to some of our wounded out front. And I took over his 84, and, and it was almost impossible to use the, the sights to identify uh, a bunker or a target through them. There was just no light gathering capability with the telescopic sight that those weapons had. So I eventually took the telescope off, opened up the open sights, and tried to engage a particular bunker with the open sights. Again, I, I couldn't get a sight picture that would hold the sight and the bunker. So eventually I just folded the sights along the side of the weapon and aimed the barrel, would you believe, at the bunker. <laughs> Roughly aligned the barrel with a bunker. And that's how I engaged bunkers through the night. It was rough alignment. What sort of distance was this, Jimmy? You're doing what sort of engagement distances? Well, one of them was that close that the round didn't arm itself. <laughs> and I think it gets I think it gets armed after fifteen meters or something like that. That's how close that one was. Uh, but I think on the whole, they were around about 30 to, to 40 metres away. Certainly no, no further than that, because I could only see them during the flash of grenades going off. Uh, maybe a bit of parallel loom would give me a, a, a target, but it was very, very difficult to engage, and it was just rough alignment. Uh, and that was as good as it got with that particular we weapon system. I was very lucky later on in the night, I bobbed and weaved back to Platoon HQ, told them the issue we had up front with the guys that were laid out uh, from the course sign that was engaged, engaged on the top and were wounded in front of us. And our patrol's guide was there dealing with some of our wounded who were in platoon HQ. And I grabbed his sniper rifle, which had a IWS on it, uh, zeroed on the cross to 300 metres. So I grabbed that and ran back down to my firing position. And I used that for about an hour or so. Uh, intermittently, again, it wasn't fantastic. But when I got a decent sight picture when the moon was out, it, it worked quite well. Uh, and I used that for quite some time. But that really is as, as good as it got with regards to engaging from our location. It was identification and assault, as good as you could make it with available firepower and the available bodies that you had at that time. So six platoon achieved its objective. What we couldn't do was sweep along the lines back to the other end, because very simply, we were right in the middle of a defensive position and were, were fixed in place, for want of a better description. We were fighting what we had around us and couldn't exploit from that point along the spine of the lion. Our two other platoons below us were in the same state. They were getting into a killing zone, taking casualties, identifying the bunkers, taking them out, moving on into another killing zone, taking casualties, identifying the bunkers. So basically they were hammering themselves again in these killing zones down below us. And that went on for hours. 
with B Company engaged on the mountain on their own. We, at some stage through the night, got naval gunfire onto Longdon. We had a naval gunfire party with us from 148 Battery. And again, they were invaluable because once depth positions could be positively identified, we could put fire down on them using the, uh, the gun on the ship that was sitting on the gun line about four or five miles offshore, supporting us in the attack. It was also invaluable later on in the night in getting some of our casualties who were stuck forward back to the platoon position, again, by putting down a very, very close barrage. There was no safety rules. It was as close as it could get without hitting any of our guys who were stood up. It, it, it was simple as that. It, it was very, very accurate indeed. The naval gunfire officer, Willie McCracken, was right up with the point platoon, directing fire as and when required for as long as the gun on that ship was dedicated to us. Bear in mind, obviously, off to our flank, there's another two mountains getting attacked as well. We also had uh, 2-9 Commando Royal Artillery in support. I think we had a battery. And again, they were used through the night as and when, mainly on the depth positions that we couldn't engage ourselves with any great degree of accuracy. So slowly but surely, we started building up around six platoons position. In reality, we became the fire base for the rest of the battalion action on Longdon. So the machine gun platoon was pulled up in the night. The Milan section of the anti-tank platoon was pulled up and they started engaging with Milan. We also had a nod brought up and that controlled the fire of both the Milan and the machine gun platoon. And they were basically starting to dominate the depth positions that we couldn't get at from where we were. This allowed E Company, who were in support of us, heading towards First Light to then come on our flank and then take what was left of the Longdon feature. And they did most of that in daylight at First Light the following morning. So they had the advantage that they could see where they were going. The downside of that was that they, they had to move for us to get there. Uh, and I know it wasn't a great sight for the A Company lads to see all the B Company casualties scattered around the mountain prior to putting their own, their own assault in. But A Company... Uh, a great company. We were very lucky. Three of our company commanders had all been squadron commanders in the SAS. So, so we had some great experience within the battalion. And A Company put in a, an excellent, basically, belt buckle attack on all the bunker complexes on that lower half of Mount Longdon, eventually securing the entire feature by about an hour into first light. And Longdon was then ours. There was still frequent odd shots going off and the odd grenade for the next couple of hours as the odd trench came to life it would bypassed or been stumbled upon. Uh, but I, I think probably by about first light plus two, it, it was as near as damn it in our hands. But that then led to other problems in that we were now on Longdon and that was also a defensive fire location for the Argentilian artillery and we then, for the next two days, were under heavy artillery fire until the ceasefire uh, or the move to our next attack start line. And that caused a hell of a lot of casualties. Uh, the, over, the, the three, over the three days we're on London, we lost 23 guys in total. From, from artillery most fire? Them, no. Most of them during the night attack, mm -hmm. but a good three or four to the artillery fire of the next three or four days that we were sat on London. The OPs on 
tumbled down until it was taken by the Scots Guard, had a, an absolute field day with us. And as we found out after the war, there was also an OP north of Longdon, uh, which had a great view of us sitting there as well. So we were raked with their pack howitzers, raked with their 155s uh, day and night for the next couple of days. And, and that, for me, was probably probably the worst part of the whole campaign, I think, was uh, that artillery fire over those com- coming days. But anyway, first light the following morning, uh, it's a battalion reorganisation on the objective. Who's where? Who's alive? Who's dead? Who's with who? So obviously, call signs have got mixed up during the night. Uh, I ended up merging the survivors of my section with the survivors of another section of a section commander that was killed. Uh, and that was then my grouping to the till the end of the war. I was now a section commander in B Company proper. Uh, so I had those guys to to re rebomb, replen, basically g them up get them into their defensive positions and prepare for the next phase of the attack, which was going to be an assault onto the area of the race course outside Stanley. And that was going to fall to free para. That was our attack. Uh, so that morning, what do we have? Basically, bodies all over the mountain, ours and theirs. We managed to get most of the casualties who we couldn't extract due to the volume of fire back to platoon and then down to the RAP. Uh, and as I mentioned, my gunner, uh, Mick had laid out there all night with a round through his throat. And that was just an example of the many, many casualties that laid out there at that time of night with uh, life-threatening injuries that survived. They were evacuated by the Army Catering Corps guys who came forward with their stretchers and took them down to the RAP. The, the dead Argentinians we buried at the bottom of the hill, uh, our own dead, uh, and again, one of the worst parts for me was body bagging our mates that had died in the fight during the night. I'd lost one of my guys. Uh, my platoon had lost something like five or six in total, I think. So bagging your mates that you'd, some of them I'd known since I was 15, uh, and then taking the bodies down to the RAP was, was, was heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, so first half a dozen hours on that mountain in daylight weren't good at all, the, the reconsolidation and the, the recovery of the casualties and the, and, and the moving of the dead uh, absolutely heartbreaking, plus we, we didn't know exactly who died we were getting rumours of friends that had died others wounded, uh, some proved to be true, some incorrect apparently I was dead for about five hours during the night, frankly that turned out to be incorrect uh, so yeah it, it was the carnage that, that you would expect to see after a battle, but you're never, ever prepared for that we were then dealing with. We then quickly reorged. Uh, we came under heavy artillery fire from the artillery positions just outside the race course. Uh, and we had to withdraw from the top of the mountain and basically hide around the flanks. So basically, we, we had to stop skylining ourselves on the top of Longdon. We occupied some of their bunkers which wasn't very nice because it stank, but it was better than being stunk by the artillery. Uh, or you had to make the best of the crevices within the rocks themselves. And literally, every time we got a salvo of three or four rounds or whatever, there'd be a cry of medic after every every impact with folk feel. And, and that cry of medic was just living me forever. Because mm. you, would, you would hear the rounds being fired at the race course, some seconds later, you'd hear them coming down and then impacting. And you would know that 
nine times out of ten, some some guys getting hit, and then you would hear those cries for medic. They mixed in a little bit bit of air burst as well, which unfortunately caused a fair few casualties. So it, it wasn't a nice time, actually sitting on Longdon, preparing for the next attack. And on the night of the thirteenth, two para moved off of our flank, having supported us during the night if required, but they weren't thankfully. And they then moved on to Wireless Ridge and attacked Wireless Ridge in front of us. They were then going to support our attack from Wireless Ridge onto the race course, right onto the edge of Stanley. We were briefed for that on the night of the 13th to put the assault in on the morning of the 14th. C Company, who'd been in reserve, were now going to be the point company. B, who'd taken the brunt of the assault on Longdon, we were going to be in reserve. And it was moving to the start line for that attack. Conducting that move is when we were told that the Argentinians were going to throw in the towel and surrender. It must have been a, a momentous moment for when that happened. A huge sense of relief. It, it, it was. It was. It, it was double-edged, though, because at the same time, we didn't know whether it was just the Argentinians and Stanley, yeah. whether it was the Argentinians on East Falkland, or whether we were then going to regroup and attack the garrison on West Falkland. Mm. But Stanley was always the key. Uh, you, know, you could have left those other settlements yeah. alone, totally. Yes, mock them up later. Absolutely. Yeah. Stanley was the key. The Argentinians obviously saw that, uh, you know, having lost their defensive ring of mountains, that it, it was a waste of time carrying on the fight any longer. And, uh, and they threw in the towel. We were quite wary, uh, as I said, for, for those reasons. The other reason is that we've been scrapping for these guys for the last couple of days. And, you know, we were only going to be happy when they were either laid dead in front of us or they were there with arms in the air, actually physically thrown in the towel. So we, we stayed basically on the alert all the time. The only thing that we did do is make safe our weapons, magazines and belts back on, para helmets off, berries on. And we then moved in behind two para into Stanley. It's basically, it was a, it was a battle march to get in first. <laughs> get, two para, get the four opportunities, the flags up. Exactly. Two para streaming off a wireless ridge with us almost doubling behind them <laughs> to get in there. But again, we, we had suspected minefields to move through. So, you know, we, we didn't go non-tack. Absolutely nothing like it. It was butt in the shoulder, still scanning the ground for likely any positions, waiting to re-engage if required. Uh, and we were very glad to get off that mountain uh, for obvious reasons. We, we'd been stonked rotten on that thing. Uh, and we'd lost a hell of a lot of guys on it. 23 in total over the uh, the three days we were on the feature. And we had 60-odd wounded, which is a hell of a figure uh, for a night attack and then a couple of days on the mountain. So that's a lot, a lot of friends we'd lost, and a lot of mates who were uh, suffering life-threatening injuries. And we had no idea at that stage of the game how they were doing and if any of them had died. Thankfully, as you, you mentioned, Fergie, the red and green life machine over at Ajax Bay, outstanding. Yeah. Every guy that went in there got out of there alive. Did uh, you say you were to that at the phenomenal. time, were you? <laughs> we, we weren't. We weren't. So obviously we're concerned. You know, there, there was guys I never saw from the start of that war to the end. You know, that, that's just the way the war, the, the war was. Uh, and to, to mount a night attack and to go into the assault and then finish it in darkness at first light the following morning. You don't know who survived. You don't know who's been hit. You get rumours. You know that B 
Bill's been hit, Joe's been hit, you don't know how bad they are. I know you're expecting the bad news coming back to see they died in the REP or they died in the uh, the Ajax Bay hospital facility or, or indeed died on the, uh, the hospital ships offshore. But nah, medical services, absolutely outstanding. When, when you look at those figures, though, you're talking about 90-odd soldiers injured or killed. That's basically one company taken out of the battle. Absolutely, which is why B were going to be in reserve for the next next yeah, attack. Absolutely massive. Because, um, think about it on that scale. It was. We were we were pretty well mauled, uh, but given what we'd attacked, yeah, yeah. it was a bit. Yeah, we, we mentioned the ratio three to one earlier on. We didn't get that. We had no room to manoeuvre. We couldn't win the firefight. We're in the pitch dark. We couldn't see them. We're in their killing zones, and we just. And, and again, it comes back to that thing I mentioned earlier when people go on about well, they were just conscripts, and you're thinking. It doesn't. It doesn't stack up when you hear the real story. A fifty caliber machine gun fire it down. Of conscripts, but they always have a professional card, and they all get taught the same sort of thing, and it works. Yeah, that's right. It works both ways. We had seventeen-year-old yeah. lads yeah. in the company, two of which were killed on the night of the attack, and one of them was killed on his eighteenth birthday that night in the assault. You know, so we we had young lads as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you uh, say, on board the ships would be young kids who have had no operational experience, their first trip abroad and all this. So I think when they, when people when use that, you know, you hear that sometimes the term is uh, the British Army is the professional army and the, the Argentines were conscripts, so we had an advantage. I don't think it's, it's true. I believe it's just, you know, it's determination at the end who was going to win. Yeah, fully agree. At the end of the day, to win a battle, you, 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 you've, you've got to basically break the will yeah. of the enemy. Yeah. Okay, and, and at that stage, they decide, I'm not hanging around yeah. here, otherwise I'm, I'm going to die in yeah. place, I'm going to leg it. Or they decide to stay. Yeah. And a lot of those, those Argentinian lads yeah. did. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can remember RT coming down on positions, uh, whatever we could throw at them, and the minute the, the stonk stopped, the Argentinian five from that particular position would start yeah, again. Yeah. You know, th- those guys on the whole were going to stick it out. They were in cracking, well-defended yeah. positions and they knew it. Who were they going to go they, to? They, they... <laughs> oh, yeah, there is that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, well, a fair few of them did go in the first game <laughs> for the night and uh, run up, run up <clears throat> down the back end of London. Uh, but, you know, Jimmy, I mean, just listen to that description there. and I've never heard such a detailed description of it. You know, I've read the books and, and all the rest of it, but, you know, it's... I just could not imagine the sheer confusion, you know, and, and you described it. It was down to pairs, the literal pairs fire manoeuvre, that most basic cog of uh, an attack. Yep. Yep. hundred percent. That's exactly what it was down to. It, it, it was down to the training, the training levels of the soldiers in the, in the paras and the commandos and the Scots guards for that matter. Uh, and the, the ability of, of junior soldiers to just crack on, when the, the command structure of a call sign is broken down, they know what the mission is. Yeah. Yeah. And they just and they and they just carry it out regardless. I don't need a corporal. I know what we're gonna do. Joel knows what we're gonna do. Let's crack on. And it and it was down to the skill of the lads at the end of the day. There's some very, very brave men on that mountain uh who received no recognition whatsoever. But we know who they were. Yeah. That that that's that's the bottom line. All right, they didn't win medals, but we don't care. You know, we know who did what on that mountain. Uh, and some of the guys were brave beyond brave. We had guys taking bunkers out who'd already been shot a couple of times, you know, cracking on. Yeah. 
you know, ab- absolutely outstanding bravely when the NCOs have been killed. And so outstanding NCOs as well, for that matter. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Uh, Ian McCoy, you've got the VC. Uh, one of the platoon sergeants uh, assaulting a bunker, cracking guy, leading from the front, which is what a platoon sergeant does. My platoon sergeant was uh, hit, throwing a grenade, basically lost his hand. Uh, right, platoon sergeant said the we will crack on regardless. Yeah, yeah. And that's just the way it is. And any, any British soldier would do the same, to be, to be honest. You know, we, we are a mission-focused organisation, and, and it's a mission every time. You, you mentioned risk. You know, the, the risk really didn't come into it for us. It was, I know what I've got to do, and we do it regardless of the cost. Yeah, no, that, that, that was a fantastic description, Jimmy. So, um, and it just goes to show you that training and fitness, it comes down to those basics, you know, ability to shoot, ability to be fit, ability to do the basics very well. Uh, and I, I hope that doesn't sound facetious, but I think, uh, I think you understand the point I'm making. Yes, yes. I think all, yeah. sold, all soldiers yeah. about the basics. If you get the basics right, everything else works. It's, yeah. it's when you forget the basics. It's too easy. Yeah, yeah, it's too easy to maybe not do the fizz, yeah. And, yeah. And, and that's when it all falls apart. And yeah. Jimmy alluded to that earlier. So, Kev, we're going to move on to the next part now. Um, just, just about well, the, recovery. the recovery. Yeah. yeah. So, Jimmy, obviously, as the campaign was rolled up and uh, they started to do the recovery back to the UK, um, for your battalion and for the soldiers themselves, was there any form of debriefing on, on the way back? Uh, any form of de- decompression that we have nowadays? No, none whatsoever. Uh, we spent about five or six days in Stanley, uh, occupying houses in Stanley uh, at platoon level. Uh, there was no debrief of any kind because we really were, we're still at that stage of the game uh, getting our act together as a result of the action on Longdon. Uh, we had guys to bury. We had, we had to go back to London to recover weapon systems that had been left on the mountain. We had friends in two parallel that we needed to look up, see how they were, because, again, they just attacked Wireless Ridge as we were going in, so we don't know who'd been killed with them. So there was a fair amount of movement around Stanley between the two battalions. Uh, a lot of admin, a lot of admin. Platoons reforming, companies reforming, who's dead, who's wounded, who's with who, whose weapon is where. After about five days, we were boarded on the MV Norland, which is the roll-on, roll-off ferry that Tupara deployed uh, to the Falklands on. Uh, so from there to Ascension, we had two and three para on board that vessel. Our decompression was two cans of beer <laughs> a night per month. And then a cracking, 
a cracking inter battalion fight on about night three. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but that was as near as decompression yeah. got. Uh, and on about the 50, we got to Ascension, uh, offloaded, uh, and were immediately put on, I think they were VC 10s, to fly back to uh, Bryce Norton in our company groups. We had no idea, and I mean no idea, that the impact or, or of the impact that the Falklands War had had back in Britain or indeed on the world. No idea. Totally devoid of any newspapers or anything like that, which would give us an idea as to the feeling of the country. For all we knew, there was anti-war protests going on back in London. Mm. No idea. However... When we flew into Bryce Norton and saw the crowds waiting at the terminal, we just couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. Banners, all that razzmatazz. Uh, we then knew that whatever we'd done, at least our families appreciated it, nobody else. But yeah, I'm, I'm, unbelievably, the rear party back in Tidworth had organised for the families to get permission from the REF to, to move on to the pan. <laughs> at the airhead at Bryce Norton, with all these banners and all the rest of it. My family were there as well. My dad was in the foreign office at the time, based in bloody Islamabad in Pakistan. And he's there with the rest of my family. <laughs> and so we walked off the aircraft, thinking we were going to go to the pub. Straight away, we were, were met by, you know, our, our families at the airhead. As it was, if you wanted to, you could give your weapon to somebody that was going back to Tidworth, and you could basically go home with your family and turn up back for work in about five days' time. Wow. Still in your, ba- still in your battle kit and go home. Now, given the posi- position I was in uh, as a corporal in charge of a section detachment, whatever, I'd already volunteered anyway to secure the weapons back in the armory at, at, at Tidworth. So I excused myself to my family, said, look, I'll, I'll get there in 24 hours or whatever, uh, and I'll see you then. So a small percentage of the guys left there and then with their families and went home. Straight from a war zone. Yeah. In the, in the kit that was stood up in. The rest of us went back to Tedworth and went on the bevy basically that night. Once, once we'd handed the weapons in, we went into the Royal Irish Rangers, whose camp was next door, invaded their naffy and, and, and got a carryout basically and, and just had a few beers. We then went on five days leave the following day and went back to wherever our family bases were at that time. So there's no debrief. Decompression, as is, on board the MV Norland with a couple of cans and then a big punch-up. And then you were suddenly at home, back in a civil environment. Yes. And it was, and, and it was not the place to be. I've, I see five days. It could have been longer. It could have been shorter. Because we then all reported back to work, carried out a proper reconsolidation and then went on block leave and i think the block leave was something like four to six weeks okay again no debriefs absolutely nothing no mention of mental health in those days or ptsd again nobody knew it was what it was jimmy did they it was only just coming out from vietnam at that point wasn't it yep you've got it so you you suddenly suddenly find yourself uh, a few weeks haven't been fighting for your life so now being stood in a pub with 60, 100 other people jostling, noise, and all the rest of it. You've had six or seven beers, and then the war just starts coming back into your head. For me, it wasn't a very good time at all. Uh, and it was due to alcohol. Nothing more, nothing less. Because the more I drank, the more I thought about the war. 
I slept very badly. I had nightmares. Yeah, it, it, it was not a good five days. And the blot leaf, to be honest, wasn't much better to have that rapid transformation from war fighting to being, if you like, a civvy in a pub with a hundred odd other people screaming and shouting and jostling you. I've got a very short temper anyway and literally no safety catch. So people <laughs> jostling me, I, I got very anti. And I got into a, a fair few fights that, that I shouldn't have been involved in in the month of Sundays. But but it was all down to basically not having the men around me all of a sudden, the lads, people to talk to. Thankfully, other guys did regroup as I did in Aldershot, even though we weren't stationed there. That's traditionally the home of the regiment. And that's where most of us went back to at some stage of the game to just basically get it out of our systems if we could. But that achieved absolutely nothing. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's where we found ourselves. We're fighting to, to drinking. Uh, <laughs> Good soldierly habits, Jimmy. <laughs> Nothing, nothing changes to this very day. No, unfortunately. That was, <laughs> that was an outstanding uh, uh, account there, Jimmy. Really, really interesting, mate. I really appreciate you coming on board. And uh, I think I just, I, I just couldn't imagine what that would have been like. And, you know, we, we do that Second World War analogy right at the start, and I think it still stands at the end of hearing your account there. Yeah. It was a Second World War battle. I think so because it was Second War in Korea was the places where the British establishment still accepted loss of equipment or you know in big scale and loss of soldiers. You know when you think about the Suez Canal, the, the British establishment didn't think twice about parachuting people in and sending the Marines in and sending other troops in with the French to take over uh, over the port. They didn't think twice. There was no hesitation. And they still had that mindset, I think, for the Falklands, which is probably how it led to the success. Yeah. Great. Okay, so we'll move on then. So a bit more, stepping down a bit now, Jimmy, a little bit more boring. I feel we should probably end the podcast there. But but how did you end up as the chief instructor with 473 Battery? And uh, when you arrived in Germany, what changes did you make to the selection course and how did your experience the Falklands influence your decision-making process? In 1989, I was a, a platoon commander in Free Para on a rudiment tour of Northern Ireland, two-year tour. I just finished my, uh, my stint as a platoon commander. And being a colour sergeant, it was heading towards the CQMS's post. I'd avoided it long enough. <laughs> uh, and finally, finally, they were going to earmark me to be a CQMS in one of the companies. However, the... Pathfinder platoon, platoon sergeant slot was becoming vacant. So I applied for that. I was free para's bid for the job, but my mate in one para got it. So I was basically gazumped at the last minute, even though the, the RSM of free para thought I was, I, I was quids in, I was going to get it. So I was quite disheartened as, as a result of that. It, it was going to be a Q, CQMS stores, whether wanted or not. <laughs> However, the, the adjutant, who was a fantastic guy, uh, was aware that I was disappointed. Uh, and he had a word with RHQ, Regimental HQ, back in Aldershot. And he said, well, Jordy's retiring over with uh, 5 Regiment Royal Artillery uh, as their chief instructor on their selection course. We'll send Morham the, the briefing folder, get him to have a look at it. If he fancies the job, put his name in. But again, I would only be free Paris bid for the job. One and two would bid also. So they, they sent over the brief folder. Uh, I had a read of that and thought, yeah, four six-man patrols right up my street, behind the lines. Yep, I'm going to have some of that. Rollover, yep, 
everything ticking the boxes for me. I know Jory was over there doing the job. We're all aware of his position because every year we get a, a location list comes out. We could all see that Jory was 5 Regiment Royal Artillery. Obviously, we asked the questions, what the hell is Jory doing there? So we were all aware of the existence of the stay-behind patrols within 5 and 3-2 Regiment. It's quite bizarre, really, because when I got to the artillery, most of the artillery weren't aware <laughs> of the patrols. We were aware in 2 and 3 Parrot. <laughs> That's about right, oh, that, yeah. <laughs> so, so I said to the Adge, yep, I'm your man. So I was free powers bid for the job. And thankfully, I got the post. So September 89, I found myself leaving Belfast, uh, flying over to Dusseldorf, picked up, taken to Dortmund, and then taken to HQ block of Five Reg, uh, where I met uh, Captain Jones, uh, who made me welcome, as all the guys did. Uh, he gave me a... Basically, a, a concept of ops brief on what the two troops do of both 5 Regiment and 3-2. Uh, he then introduced me to Bren, who was heading up the selection team at that time. And Bren gave me a detailed brief uh, on the role of the selection team and the selection process for the Royal Artillery Special Observer. Bren was an absolutely outstanding man uh, and one of, the, one of the most professional soldiers I've ever worked with. And the year or so that I spent with him and the team, he was an absolute godsend. Fantastic professional. But I think the hardest thing that Bren tried to do unsuccessfully was to teach me how to use a computer. <laughs> Brent, Brent can't use a computer. <laughs> well, I tell you what, he, he certainly buffed his way if he couldn't. But uh, but yeah, so as I say, I was made very welcome. Uh, I was also shown around the regiment, met the RSM, CO, uh, people like that. Fed into the, uh, the the battery itself and got stuck into into selection. At the time, there was a, an SES short service commission officer there, uh, and I think for about the first two selections that I, I I ran, there was always one of those SES captains around, and they had quite some input as well on the uh, on the training program. So that was me in five reg, nothing better. I had no duties to do. I was solely running selection alongside Bren, uh, and I was absolutely over the moon. For me, it was just soldiering, and that's all I've ever been in the Army to do, and I was in the right place at the right time with the right guys. The quality of the OP soldiers serving in both troops at the time was excellent. I could see Geordie had laid a, a fan, fantastic foundation of basic patrol skills, which is what was required from myself in my role. So it was obvious to see that he'd been successful. The The guys were very switched on, very, very good at what they did. Uh, and I was quite impressed when I then operated with them during Granby on the first Gulf War. Very competent soldiers indeed. Uh, and for Royal Artillery guys, they had literally remolded themselves into patrol soldiers. Quite a significant feat. So well done, Jordy and there. Good on the guys for passing such a, a hard selection course and get to be Royal Artillery Special Observers. And uh, what sort of changes did you make, Jimmy, based on your uh, Falklands experience? Well, I, I didn't jump in immediately uh, and start playing around with the selection programme. It was quite clear to me what part I played in that selection process. And I made it quite clear right at the start that the one thing I was not going to do was select those soldiers. That was down to the Royal Artillery guys. They knew what they wanted 
out of a special observer. Mm-hmm. I only had an inkling. They knew what they wanted out of the, out of the finished product. So I would do my bit, and I would lay the foundation down, and I would turn those artillery volunteers on selection into six-man patrol soldiers. And that's what I was going to do. Selecting them, that was down to the OP troop and the battery as it became itself. That was their baby. And I made that clear right from the word go. It's your job. You select the guys. I'll train them in the phases that I'm responsible yeah. for. Yeah. So the first, the first couple of selections that I sat through, it's basically did a walk and talk with, with Bren through the first one, sat on the shoulders of the, the SES captain that was there at the time. Some stuff that I saw, I liked. Some I didn't like. I then ran the second one, but again, made no changes. For the third selection course, I changed all the training areas. I thought the, the training areas were starting to look a bit tired and they were starting to become known to some of the more local volunteers who were Dortmund-based. So I wanted to get away from those areas. So myself and Brent sat down and identified, uh, basically did a, a map study of other areas that, that would fit our taskings, and we then booked those areas for the future selections. You've already really hit the nail on the head with regards to my role and what I was doing there. I needed to break those artillery volunteers down from being whatever they were, whether it was a locator, air defense, gun bunny, or whatever, and turn them into a four-man patrol soldier. I'd had a, a conversation some years previously with a, a mate of mine uh, in, a, in a special forces unit. And he said to me that in his, his experience, in an initial contact, the guys in the patrol who were, I don't know, ex-Remi, uh, ex-Army Catering Corps, ex-Tankies or whatever, for that split second of that initial contact, they reverted back down to what they initially were on startup. Mm-hmm. So for that very, very brief moment, they became again an ECC cook, a Remi mechanic, or a tank driver. Just for that split second, they went back to their default setting. And then they got a grip and started applying the correct principles required at the time as per a four-man patrol soldier. So bearing that in mind, I wanted to try and avoid that happening with our patrol soldiers. So it's a case really of me breaking them down from what they were and turning them into something else. And I've, I've got no shame seeing this because I did it with my recruits as well. I basically turned them into mini jimmies. <laughs> all of... <laughs> so I'll apologize to any of those volunteers that got through and went to the battery uh, who now might be suffering as a result of that. I think a few of them would probably well, feel I... quite flattered by that comparison, Jim. <laughs> So, so the bottom line was, we, we spoke about fitness. The Falcons for me emphasized that you need to be super fit to operate under arduous conditions, carrying operational weights for extended periods of time and function. And that's the important thing. As, as you said earlier on, Fergie, you, you, you know, if you're not fit enough, you're not going to function correctly. Okay, because you, 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 your physical fitness at the end of the day relates to your mental fitness as well. And if you're mentally fit, then you're alert, you're switched on, and you're doing the job. Not everybody can attain those fitness standards, and that's where the selection fitness standards came in. And I was quite happy with the, the progression of the fitness as it, as it was in the program at that stage of the game. But what I wanted to do was to, one, put the guys in the field for longer periods of time. 
And what I did, I merged all those small exercise phases into a couple of big ones. It's my belief that we can all look good over a weekend. We can all look good on an exercise over a week and then get a big clap on the back at the end of it and go back to the billet. It's a bit different when you're out there for an unknown length of time, cold, wet, lack of sleep, on the move, or manning an OP. And that is what I wanted to feed in. You've got it. So I wanted to extend, extend the period of time that the volunteers were on the ground and myself and the other DS had eyes on them and how they reacted through that extended period of time out on the ground. So linked in with that, camouflage and concealment, patrol movement, OP selection, OP routine. Again, it's my experience from the Falklands that OPs of ours in free para, commando OPs and special service OPs that were compromised, it then resulted nine times out of 10 in a fatal outcome. Okay. And it was through the OPs being detected most of the time. So I was very insistent that our our lessons on OP selection, construction, occupation routine were as good as they ever could be. So that should those soldiers deploy live, as obviously we did in Granby, but in a, in a different manner, they would have the best possibility of attaining and achieving their mission and not themselves being fixed in place and contacted by the enemy. We Most of us are aware, listen to this, the civilians obviously won't be, but trying to extract from a covert hidden position is very, very difficult if the enemy have located and fixed you in that spot. Trying to get out of it is very, very difficult without sustaining casualties. And my experience of the Gulf War, Falklands and Northern Ireland, contacted OPs, they're in trouble. Yeah. So that so that that's that's the way I, I I ran out my own idea of what the patrol soldier should achieve that was my responsibility. Breaking down, building back up again, introducing the job with high-quality, high-level instructors and lessons, and then ensure that by the time my phase is finished, they're ready to go on to the continuation training, the uh, OP Act courses, the LUP courses, and all the rest of it, not embarrass themselves, not embarrass the battery, and more importantly, be capable of doing the job. Yeah. I think that's absolutely spot on there, mate. And I think um, things change, you know, and we've talked to a common thread through the podcast is those good skills now that you needed in the Falklands and you've taught to us on when you were selection DS, they're still needed now. It doesn't change. You can have all the fancy gear and yeah. comms equipment, new weapons, but those basic skills never yeah. change over time. It's the same. Yeah, always, same skills. Yeah, always boils down to the man. Yeah. You, you can have as much technology around the battlefield as you want. Somebody's still got to get there and get eyes on. That's what it's all about. And you've got the skills to achieve that, which then achieves the mission of you guys, as it was then, calling in indirect fire on selected targets from your hidden locations. And that ultimately is is what you achieved. The, the battery is still doing it now to a very good standard. I'll just go back to training. You've got to go live with your training at some stage of the game. I try to ensure that the guys, having gone dry with their basic skills, went live and I did that with continuation training with the OP troop and the battery as it became. Contact drills with blank ammunition is one thing. 
but to indoctrinate guys to being under fire, it's got to be done live. And I was very keen on every selection to get the patrols, those that succeeded, up to the ranges and do live contact drills under simulated attack conditions. Uh, there'll be people listening to uh, this. Mate, I've been uh, on your ranges, mate. I've been on your media. range, Jimmy, <laughs> so I can remember exactly what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 no doubt, fun memories of, of coming under fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was. Uh, I'm up, he sees me, I'm back down straight yeah. away. There was no messing around. There wasn't very big bounds, I know that. <laughs> well, Ultimately, guys, that, that's that's the way it's got to be. Uh, we've got we've got to be able to do our jobs live, and it's only when you go live that you find the issues. You know, the stuff in the wrong pockets, the wrong yeah. pouches. I've got a grenade I can't get at because the bloody button that's holding it down, I can't undo it. I can't get to my mag. That's all the important things that you will get away with on an exercise. Because as I said, we can all look good. Get them on the range, get them live. That way, when it happens for real, it's instinctive, and you don't get the patrol member falling back to his default position. He knows what to do, and he fights on, carries out the correct drills, and breaks contact, and lives to fight another day. And that, that ultimately was my aim, and I think I achieved that on the ranges. And I don't know if you guys, did either of you guys take part in the platoon attack that I did? I think it might have just been the, the, the five red Yeah, I did it. Yeah, you did, did the platoon it. attack. You, you yeah, rolled that... on and on and on. For, you got out the range mentality that you don't just get to the end of the range. We harboured up, bomb back up, and we're back into it. Right. Absolutely. That, that's the only way to train, and, and that is how I try to conduct selection. Yeah, Your ranges were, were, were very famous, Jimmy, but I have to say, mate, if I was to do one of your ranges today, it'd probably take me about five minutes to go off my belt. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I don't think I'll be far behind you. <laughs> mate, that was brilliant. So we're going to move on to the final part, Kev. Yeah, and as usual, we'll finish off with some Desert Island Dits, in which our guest, Jimmy, will tell us his favourite military book, his film and luxury items. So, Jimmy, on to you. Okay, uh, I'll start with my film, and it is Tunes of Glory, starring Sir Alec Guinness and Sir John Mills. Filmed shortly after World War II, based on a Scottish battalion recently returned from North Africa, now based in a garrison town somewhere in Scotland. Commanding the battalion is a acting colonel who was decorated during the desert campaign and was now basically running the battalion. His leadership was fairly laid back, which led to a laid back battalion, probably still doing its job, uh, but under his terms. He then was replaced by another colonel who had previously served in the battalion post-war, sorry, prior to the war, and had been a prisoner of war in Japan. He was very much a product of Sandhurst, and he basically imposed that kind of regime on the battalion, much to the disgust of the now second-in-command, who had been looking after the battalion since North Africa, now demoted back down to major. So the basic, the, the basic storyline is that the, the colonel's being undermined by the second-in-command for the whole of the film. So his Sandhurst approach... It's slowly being eroded by the second in command and a small group of officers that were his uh, sort of uh, little gang. It leads eventually to the suicide of the colonel. Lessons to be learned, probably not a lot at our sort of soldier level, but it, but is it a great example of a unit 
recently returned from war, which now has peacetime strategy placed mm. upon it. Mm. And the potential reaction from the soldiers who'd served during that campaign. And I saw a wee bit of that after the Falklands when we lost our Falkland CO and had a new CO arrive. A wee bit of that was going on. And had he been uh, in the Falklands, in, this new CO, Jimmy, or was he? No. No, 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 he'd not. He'd not. You know him well. He commanded the British troops uh, during Gulf One. All right. Uh, yeah. Uh, a very, very good CO, but we we're under the inclination he'd been sent in to clear some of us out, war veterans. Mm. Uh, because a lot of people suddenly started getting posted out, me being one of them, sent off down to the, the recruit depot. But 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 that's just using that film as an example. It is a, a fantastic film. Uh, the, the slow undermining of the CO uh, is absolutely disgraceful. And you can see the mental effect that it's having on that colonel, having been a prisoner of war of the Japanese and suffering torture under their hands. And it's slowly uh, eroding his confidence in commanding the battalion. Uh, he makes a, a grave mistake in not court-martialing the second-in-command uh, for striking a private soldier. And that basically undermines his position in the eyes of the rest of the officers and leads indirectly to his suicide. A really, really good film, and I, I, I can't recommend it enough. I've seen it about six times now. All the main characters in it actually served in World War II. Yeah. So they look the part, and they act like soldiers. It's unusual like, like for a film, soldiers. isn't it? <laughs> you got it. And it's quite funny in parts as well. Uh, but, yeah, outstanding film. Tunes of um, Glory. The only question about the film is, you two, can you two do the dancing part? <laughs> that was always the music part. All the soldiers do PT, and the officers... Had to practice island dancing. Just like that. I cannot answer that question, (laughs) sir. Yeah, I don't know about Fergie, but I actually do own and wear a kilt, but you wouldn't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And I think think that's a cue to move on to your book, Jimmy. Okay, in line line with what we've just discussed, my recommended book is Three Days in June. It was written by a lad in free power called Jimmy O'Connell. And it's based entirely on the attack on Longdon. And it's the accounts of about 30 or 40 guys in the battalion. It's very, very well written. There's no exaggeration. There's no gung-ho. There's no bullshit. It's just guys telling it as it was. After I read it, I was, if I could possibly be even more prouder than the guys in the battalion, because there's no, no truer word said that in a, in a fight, you can't see beyond your own rifle sights. You don't really know what's going on in any great depth left and right of you. That book, for me, painted the picture. I know now what the guys in the other platoons were doing. I now know what B, uh, C Company was doing, D Company, A Company. I've got the full picture. Is that a recent book, very, very... Jimmy, is it? Sorry to interrupt you, mate. Is that it... quite recent, that book? Because that's been out a long time. It only came out last year. I, I, you can get it. You can get it on Amazon, and it's just been picked up by one of the major publishers. But you can get it on Amazon. But there's one that's named very, very similar, which is an act of fiction by somebody who's jumped on the bandwagon. But Jimmy's book is Three Days in up. June. Yeah. I hadn't heard of it until you, yeah. you, you flagged it up there. Oh, I will tell you now. It will be the best account of a battle that you have ever read. That's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. The way he's written it 
following the battalion's attack timeline, including the radio messages, is absolutely brilliant. And it goes into detail into the casualties, what happened to them, what happened to their treatment, where they went. It, it, the detail is just, just outstanding. There's some funny bits in it, as there always is in war. There's some very, very bad bits in it. But the bottom line is, great book. Buy it. Oh, definitely that one up, mate. Thanks for that. And luxury item? Okay, luxury item. Uh, during my military service, uh, and indeed uh, doing what I've done since I left the army in the private security industry, I've, I've worked all over the world. The one thing I've always taken with me is a shortwave radio. <laughs> uh, yeah. So long before the days of the internet and all the rest of this stuff, I could hear what was going on back in the UK and the rest of the world. So I had sloping antennas and all sorts of stuff <laughs> traveling along me. I ensured that wherever I was in the world, I, well, I didn't communicate, but the world communicated with me. So my luxury item is going to be a shortwave radio made by the British company Roberts. Uh, 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 they make yeah, 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 yeah. fantastic radios. They've been making them basically since before World War One of those, they fit in the palm of your hand, don't they? Those tiny little ones. Is yeah. that ones you're on about, Jim? Uh, you yeah. got it. So a, dig- so a digital yeah. shortwave Roberts yeah. radio, and that would be my luxury I've, item. I've got one in the office. And people don't know what it is about you. No, they don't. And they don't know. And I listen to all sorts, like World Service and that, and they go, what's that? I'm out. Oh, it's, it's, and more importantly, Jimmy, it takes army issue batteries. Doesn't get in there, does it? Be <laughs> a Scotsman, mate. You've got to get your free batteries in. <laughs> got to be done. Got to be done. Okay, then. My recommendation is the Red and Green Life Machine. We, we talked about the field hospital earlier on, and Jimmy's talked about quite extensively about the casualties that the battalion took. But if you want a, a, a companion piece, probably to what Jimmy's talking about, how the casualties were looked after and how they survived, this book by Rick Jolly, The Red and Green Life Machine, hugely recommended. What about you, Kev? My, mine is uh, Wingate and the Chindits, Redressing the Balance. It was a book written by David Rooney in 1996, and it was a follow-on to earlier books about the Chindits, about Wingate and all the rest of it, about setting the, the story straight. And what's quite interesting, again, is, you know, tens of thousands of troops behind enemy lines carrying all your kit and taking the fight to the enemy. Absolutely fantastic. But after the, after he died during the Second World War, Slim talked about the, the massive success of the Chindits. You know, and obviously the Americans copied that that tactic with Merrill's Marauders and um, praised uh, Wingate. But post-war, Slim was critical of Wingate in 1956. Um, saying that actually it wasn't so much of a success. Uh, the victories were very small in comparison to the amount of resources being used to, to do it. But but what everyone forgot about was the war in the Middle East, uh, in the Far East, sorry, was um, a forgotten war. And it, you know, it was ferocious for all the soldiers that were fighting out there. The 14th Army was always known as the Forgotten Army. And we needed some big successes, as we had in Europe, in the Far East. Um, Wingate's tactic and he was considered a maverick, did provide that, that sort of shock to the Japanese that they were no longer invincible, and we would take those massive risks. And it did. Disproportionate amount of injury and killed people, and you look at the amount of columns that went in, and they come out with a few hundred blokes, and out of that few hundred blokes, only a couple of them could go back to frontline service because of malaria and all the illnesses. But I think it did turn the time in, in, a, in a sort of propaganda way or in a successful way, it was a bit like Churchill sending in bombers across Europe, SOE, commando raids against the uh, mainland Europe, 
they weren't going to have massive impact. But what it did say was we're still in the fight, we're still doing something. Well worth a read. It talks about his preaching it period. Um, Does it mention the fact that he liked to sometimes sit naked eating raw onions? It, it hints at a few things um, <laughs> that he did. But it, but it talks about Gideon Force, which was his, his precursor to the Chindits with his, the Ethiopian troops. And, and I think it was a fantastic read. It's, it's interesting to read that someone was a maverick. He got his own way because he was, he was politically um, – um, he had influence in politics and, and, and straight to Churchill – if you look to it as per a successful campaign, you probably look at the amount of resources used versus what they achieved and all the rest of it. You might not feel they were, but I think at the time we needed wins and successes to keep the public um, yeah, right. after five years of war and also to show our allies that we were still in the fight because the Merrill's Marauders, which is another book we'll talk about another time, actually did some very successful long-range penetration patrols and took the fight to the enemy. Well, were they an American? Yeah, they, Merrill Marauders oh. are the precursor to the Ranger Battalions. Uh, right. So one of the, to the Rangers, old, um, the Rangers during the Second World War were mainly in Europe, and then you had the Joint Ranger, American and Canadian Force, the One Special Service Brigade. But in the Far East, uh, Merrill's Marauders, it was a briefing given by Wingate and someone else, Stillwell, he went across to America, gave the briefing, and they formed a, a, a American brigade to do exactly the same thing. And interestingly enough, the American brigade went through exactly the same issues. The columns got decimated. They took on some major battles. Uh, and when they came back, they, they were all disbanded and, and moved to different areas because they had such a high sickness rate at the end of it because they all were injured and sick of one thing or another. But all the Americans were awarded the Bronze Star for their service in Mel's Marauders, every single one of them. But they were it was a ferocious fight because you're talking about hundreds of mules, airplanes, wounded getting left behind because they couldn't bring the wounded back. So it's definitely, it was a tough old, you know, uh, tactic. Well worth a read. Well, we're coming to the end of the podcast now. Jimmy, thanks for coming on, mate. Thanks, Jimmy. Standing, listen there, and I just really hammered home what you guys in that battalion went through in order to achieve that victory. Uh, it was amazing. Also, thanks to the listener for your continued support and suggestions. And if you want to get in touch, our email address is at the bottom of the show notes. You can find us on the, all the usual social media suspects, including Instagram and Facebook, uh, and all those links in the show notes as well. If you've downloaded us from iTunes, can you give us a review? As This is sort of one of the main sites for downloads, and uh, it'll get the show out to a wider audience. On our next pod, our guest is Chris Lincoln-Jones, who is Battery Commander of the Battery when we deployed to the first Gulf War on Operation Granby, and he will give us an insight into this operation. And we're going to look to release that podcast on the 30th anniversary of the Ground Offensive, starting on the 16th of February, 2021. Finally, thanks again to Nick Beale for sponsoring the series and offering technical support through his company, ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.